Today, we're going to talk about one of the most disturbing cases in true crime history, Issei Sagawa, the Japanese cannibal who devoured a woman and then got away with it because he had a wealthy father who pulled the right strings to get him out of prison. He became a guest speaker and commentator. He's written restaurant reviews, played in porn movies, and he even wrote a book about the murder he committed. But before we start, let me tell you about one of the best mobile games out there, Raid Shadow Legends. Raid is one of the most popular mobile games for Android, iOS, and PC, and it's an immersive online experience with an amazing storyline. Here are my five reasons to play Raid. The main reason would be the aesthetics. The graphics look much better than a lot of the PC games I used to play, and for a mobile game, this is a big plus. Second, I like the fact that you can customize your champions in a unique way. There's so many champions, so many skills to learn that I never get bored playing this game. I often hear my wife behind my bathroom door saying, Really? It's been 35 minutes. Are you okay? Third is the similarity with other games I used to play in the past, like Heroes 3. The fourth reason I play this is the single-player experience. I'm an introvert myself, and I don't really like to rely on my teammates to do the job for me. And the fifth, not that I couldn't find more, but I wanted to make this short, is the storyline. A good mobile game is all about the storyline, and Raid really delivers on that one. Raid's got a ton happening this month, with a fresh rotation of the brutal Hydra boss, and a ton of events and tournaments every single day including some special Valentine's Day events where you can get your hands on a brand new legendary champion. This is the best time to get started in Raid, and if you click my link in the description or scan my QR code here on the screen, you'll get cool bonuses. We're talking a free epic champion, Rector Draft, 200,000 silver, one energy refill and one XP boost, and one ancient shard so you can summon awesome champions as soon as you get in-game. All this treasure will be waiting for you here, the link is in the description. Now, back to our video. He was a short man, just under five feet tall. His hands and feet were small, and even his voice was more like that of a girl. He had mentioned in some interviews that he wasn't the kind of man most women would find attractive, and he surmised that being acutely self-conscious of his shortcomings might have fueled his obsession with the perfect woman. In Cannibal Killers, Moira Martingale describes how Issei Sagawa a brilliant Japanese student, obsessed over tall women with occidental features. Eventually, fantasy was not enough. So while studying for his degree in English literature at Wako University in Tokyo, he became attracted to a German woman who was teaching him the language. When I met this woman in the street, he later said to British reporter Peter McGill, I wondered if I could eat her. One summer day, he crawled through the window of her apartment, intent on killing her. To his delight, she was asleep. Even better, she was hardly wearing anything at all. He looked for something to use to knock her out or stab her, and he spotted an umbrella. However, before he could do anything, the woman woke up and saw him there. She screamed, scaring him, and he fled from the apartment. But he did not forget what he most desired. It had been almost too easy to get close to a woman, and if he prepared himself better, he felt sure he could indulge in his fantasy. He just had to plan it more effectively so he could begin to look around for his next victim, one that would not get away. It wasn't until he went to Paris a few years later that he found the woman that he could not get off his mind. Her white skin, the fleshy shape of her buttocks, and her beautiful features both repulsed and drew him in. He started to insinuate himself into her life. Sagawa believed that he loved these women and that he could demonstrate it by consuming them. 
It wasn't unheard of. In fact, a fair number of serial killers have eaten some part of their victims. Let's look at a list. An exhaustive list is beyond the scope of this video, but in alphabetical order, some of the outstanding examples of people who killed and then devoured others, as opposed to cannibalizing already dead corpses, include Nathaniel Barjona. Barjona was charged in Montana with killing a 10-year-old boy, Zachary Ramsey, cutting him up, and using the body parts for stews. He had a history of offenses against young boys, as well as hanging one from a kitchen ceiling, and he kept hundreds of photographs of children in his apartment. When he was arrested, he was impersonating a police officer outside an elementary school, and he was carrying a stun gun and pepper spray. Andre Chikatilo For 12 years, this older man preyed on children in Russia, and while he confessed to as many as 52 murder mutilations, it's believed that he committed many more. To some extent, what he did might have been influenced by tales his mother told about how his older brother had been cannibalized by Russian peasants driven insane by hunger because he devoured parts of his victims in that kind of savage manner. After luring them away from train or bus stations into the woods, he would stab them, stuff their mouths with mud, rip at them with his bare hands, and chew off their genitals. He also gouged out their eyes or bit off their tongues, and he often carried their organs away with them. At his trial, he was placed in a steel cage for his own protection, which made him look even more like a savage beast. The judge sentenced him to death and he was executed in 1994. Jeffrey Dahmer Found in Dahmer's apartment when he was arrested in 1991 were skulls stripped of flesh and whole torsos dismembered and soaking in acid. He claimed he was making an altar of the skulls and bones of his victims, and parts of those whom he liked he also consumed. There were blood-stained soup kettles to indicate that this could be true, and Dahmer had also stored internal organs and heads in his refrigerator and freezer. The remains of 11 different men were found inside the apartment, and he later confessed to six more. He was sentenced to life but was killed in prison. Harl Denki He was arrested in 1924 for multiple murders in Poland. He had the pickled remains of many of his victims in the kitchen and basement of his inn and apparently he'd eaten parts from as many as 31 people. After one of his lodgers escaped his axe attack and told another who had done it, Denki was arrested. He claimed that for over three years, human flesh had been his sole source of meat. His victims were mostly beggars and journeymen. He never explained his motives and ended up hanging himself in his cell. Albert Fish, a religious fanatic and sadist, early in childhood he developed an obsession with punishment he secretly beat himself with spiked paddles. He also stuck needles into his groin and lighted alcohol-soaked cotton balls inside his anus. In visions, he received commandments that made him believe he was Abraham from the Bible. And just as Abraham was called to sacrifice his only son to the Lord, Fish realized he would have to kill children or at least to castrate young boys. It was for the murder of 12-year-old Grace Budd when he was 58 that he was arrested. He ingratiated himself with the Budd family and then told Grace that he would take her to a birthday party. Her family never saw her again. Six years went by, and for some inexplicable reason, Fish sent an anonymous note to Grace's mother. He wrote about how he had taken Grace away, strangled her, and then dismembered her. Then he claimed that he had cooked certain pieces of her and consumed them. In the stew he made of Grace Bud's flesh, he had added carrots and bacon strips, and as he savored it over the next nine days, he masturbated over his grisly deed. On January 16, 1936, he was executed. Robin Getched During the 1980s, 
he led a group of three other people known as the Ripper Crew, or Chicago Rippers, in killing an estimated 18 women. They would kill a victim, sever her left breast with a thin wire, clean it out to use for sexual gratification, and then cut it into pieces to consume. Ostensibly, they were worshipping Satan, and eating the flesh was a form of devilish communion. Ed Gain Known as the man who inspired Psycho, Gain read extensively about headhunters and cannibals, and when he learned that heads with longer hair were most valued, he turned his own attention to women. It's not clear that he ate his victims since unsubstantiated rumors abounded, but he did eat out of a bowl made from a human cranium. At first, he dug up fresh corpses from the cemetery, but then he murdered two local women. When Bernice Warden was tracked to him, police officers found that his house was filled with body parts. Four noses, several bone fragments, nine death masks, a heart in a pan, ten female heads with the tops sawn off, human skin covering several chair seats, preserved genitalia in a box, skulls on his bedposts, organs in the refrigerator, a pair of lips on a string, and much more. It was estimated that he had mutilated some 15 women and kept their remains around him. He died in 1984 in a psychiatric hospital. Georg Grossman This former butcher engaged in every kind of sexual perversion. His M.O. was to bring prostitutes home, have sex, and then cut them up. He sold the meat on the streets, and when police were called to his apartment, they found the butchered remains of four women. He hanged himself in prison. Fritz Harman Known as Germany's Hanover Vampire, Harman was a homeless vagrant who learned to butcher meat, which allowed him to start a business. He then brought wandering waifs to his home. He was stopped when someone discovered a sack of skulls in a canal near his home. To the police, he confessed to the murder of some 50 young men. He described how he would grab the boys and chew through their throat until the head was practically severed from the body. As he tasted their blood, he achieved orgasm. He would then cut the flesh from their bodies consume some of it, and sell the rest on the open market as butchered meat. He was executed. Gary Michael Heidnick Despite being schizophrenic, he successfully completed nurse's training, which allowed him to purchase a house in Philadelphia. There, during the 1970s, he ran a church frequented by retarded women. Then he got rich on the stock market, bought a different house, and eventually set up a new church that became a prison for sex slaves that he kept chained in the basement of his home. When two of them died, one from electrocution and the other from hanging in chains for two days. He cut them up and stored the parts. By some accounts, he ate pieces of them and fed some to his other prisoners. Heidnik was finally arrested and, in 1999, he was executed. Jack the Ripper In London's Whitechapel area in 1888, a series of five bloody murders shook up the town and ushered in the age of the modern serial killer. Although the offender was never caught, several letters came to different authorities including one that enclosed part of a human organ. The letter writer claimed that it was the kidney of his latest victim, Annie Chapman, and that he had fried and eaten the other half. Was very nice. Jack, whoever he was, did take the kidney of one of his victims and the heart of another, which was very probably consumed. Ed Kemper During the 1970s, he picked up six different college co-eds in Santa Cruz, California, and killed them. Then he shoved them into the trunk of his car to take home. While his mother slept, Kemper brought the bodies inside to be head and dismember. He also had sex with them, sometimes with just the heads. From a few of the girls, he cut off pieces of flesh to cook and consume. Then he murdered his mother and her best friend before turning himself in. In his confession, 
he said that he'd slice the flesh from the calves of two of his victims so that he could possess them by eating it. He cooked the pieces in a macaroni casserole. Hemper is still in prison. Wahim Kroll. He started to kill in 1955 when he was 22. He continued for two decades in the Duisburg area of Germany. At one point, on a whim, he tasted the flesh from a murdered woman and found that he liked it. Thereafter, he stalked women or girls that he thought would yield tender meat and left their bodies to be discovered, pieces of flesh cut mostly from the buttocks. Many of them were young, and one was only four years old. When police finally nabbed him, they found a kettle on his stove boiling carrots and potatoes, along with a tiny female hand. Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. These men worked as a team from the time they met in 1976, and after they were caught and imprisoned, both confessed to an unbelievably high number of murders, and later, Lucas recanted many of them. Then he said he'd been forced to recant. Toole claimed to be a cannibal, but Lucas said that he'd abstained because he did not like the taste of barbecue sauce. Alfred Packer. This was the first case of cannibalism to have been tried in the U.S. courts. And while he had many supporters to this day who believe his consumption of human flesh was justified by starvation, modern forensic analysis has dispelled all doubt about what he really did. In 1874, Packer was hired to guide five prospectors through the Colorado mountains, the youngest of whom was a teenager. Six weeks after they set out, Packer came alone into the Los Pinos Indian Agency, looking fit and well-fed and spending money from several wallets. He claimed that the harsh weather had killed the others, but then strips of human flesh were found along the trail. That cast some doubt on his shifting story. A few months later, the five skeletons were located, and Packer fled across the state line. Nine years went by before he was caught and brought to Lake City, Colorado, for trial. A prospector who had seen the victims in their decomposing state described hatchet wounds on one of the skulls, and on slim evidence, Packer was convicted of premeditated murder. In a second trial, held due to legislative error, he was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Eventually, supporters won him a pardon in 1901. His reputation restored, he was viewed as a victim of circumstances. Then, a forensic expedition in 1989 exhumed the bones, which were in surprisingly good state of preservation, and the analysis was conclusive. There were defensive wounds on some of the victims, and clear evidence that they had been attacked by a hatchet and defleshed by a knife. Packer had been an outright cannibal. Daniel Rakowitz In Manhattan's Lower East Side in 1989, this demented man walked around Tompkins Square Park bragging that he'd killed his girlfriend, Monica Beerley. He said that he'd boiled her head and made soup from her brain. He'd tasted it and liked it, and thereafter referred to himself as a cannibal. Arthur Shawcross He killed 11 women in Rochester, New York from 1989 to 1990. And while evaluated for insanity, he claimed that he'd consumed the parts of one of his victims after returning to the crime scene. Postmortem mutilation with missing pieces became part of his M.O. after the eighth victim, so defense psychiatrists believed him. However, his insanity plea was rejected, and he was sentenced to life without parole. Thus, Issei Sagawa is not alone in his penchant for human flesh. Let's return to him to see how he put his plan into motion. While studying at the Censure Institute in Paris in 1981, Sagawa spotted another tall, beautiful Northern European woman, Renée Hartfeld. He says that when he sat next to her in a class, he fell instantly in love and could not stop thinking about the white skin of her arms. She was the perfect woman for what he wanted to do. But this time, he had to be more careful. 
he had to be ready. Renee was 25, blonde and independent. She spoke three languages and had a bright future, intending to get a PhD in French literature. Sagawa asked her to teach him German, and since his father was quite wealthy, he could pay her well. She accepted. According to him, she liked his obvious intelligence and ability to discuss everything from Impressionist paintings to Shakespeare to European literature. He wrote her love letters and invited her to concerts and exhibits. He was small, feminine, and walked with a limp, yet she often went with him and invited him over to her apartment for tea. They even danced together, allowing Sagawa a more physical sense of his fantasies. He found these Nordic women overpowering, and even as he claimed he loved them, he wanted to possess and destroy them. One day, he invited René over to his apartment for dinner. He asked her to read a poem by his favorite German expressionist, which she did. After she left, he smelled and licked the place where she had sat and vowed that he would eat her. That would allow him to possess her forever. Soon he asked her to come over again for dinner. He had a cassette recorder, he said, and he wanted to record her reading of the poem. She accepted for the evening of June 11, 1981, and Sagawa prepared himself to act out his ultimate fantasy. Upon arriving in Paris, he had purchased a 22 caliber rifle for self-protection. He had it ready when René arrived. He seated her on the floor, Japanese-style, to drink tea. Into her drink, he put some whiskey to make her more pliant. They talked for a while as Sagawa waited for the whiskey to have its effect. Then he told René that he loved her and wanted to take her to bed. She resisted him. She found him engaging but not sexually attractive. She wanted only to be his friend. Sagawa nodded. Then he got up to get the book of poetry while René sat on a chair. Sagawa handed the poem to René to read and started the recorder. While René recited the poem in her native language, Sagawa came up behind her with his rifle and shot her in the back of the head. She fell off the chair. He continued to talk to her, but she failed to answer. He was surprised by how quiet it was. Then he noticed the amount of blood that flowed out of her wound. At first he attempted to clean it up, but he finally gave up. Then he undressed her, finding it difficult to remove clothing from a corpse. But now he was pleased that she could no longer refuse his advances. She belonged to him. Then he got a knife and used it to cut off the tip of her left breast and a piece of her nose. These he consumed. I touched her hip, he later wrote in his fictional account, in the fog, and wondered where I should bite first. He chose her right buttock, but he found it difficult to bite into, and then realized he had a headache. He then went on to describe, moment by moment, the appearance of her fat and muscle, and the taste of it. As fat oozed out of one stab wound, Sagawa said it had the consistency and appearance of yellow corn. He smelled it and found that it had no odor. Heading deeper to find the flesh, he placed a chunk into his mouth. It melted into my mouth like raw tuna in a sushi restaurant. To him, there was nothing more delicious, and he looked into Renee's dead eyes to tell her so. He was ecstatic now that he had indulged himself in his fantasy. He had this gorgeous body all to himself. It had taken him until the age of 32 to consummate his desires. But he had done it. Then he got serious. Using an electric carving knife, Sagawa began to cut René into parts. He laid out strips of flesh to store for later and nibbled on a few pieces raw. Then he made a quick meal of fried human flesh with mustard. He took photographs of the mutilated corpse and had sex with it. When I hug her, he recorded, she lets out a breath. He told her that he loved her. As he cooked and ate more of her remains, 
he listened to the recordings he had made of her reading the poem. When he was finished, he used her underwear as a napkin to wipe his mouth. Then he returned to her body, cut off a breast, and baked it, but disliked the greasy consistency. He found that he preferred her thighs. When he finally felt exhausted, he took what was left of the corpse into his bed to sleep with it. He knew that in the morning he would have to prepare to get rid of the evidence. The next day, finding that the body did not yet smell, he continued to try parts of it, in particular the arm that had so fascinated him. He chewed on it all the way from the underarm to the elbow. I had no idea, he wrote, that it would taste so good. Sagawa was curious about a few of the body parts that seemed more repulsive. He hesitated over what to do, but decided to go ahead and indulge. Cutting out the anus, he put it into his mouth, but the smell overpowered him, so he spit it out. He tried frying it, but that failed to diminish the odor, so he gave up and returned to the body. By this time, several large flies swarmed around the corpse, so Sagawa took this as a sign that he'd lost Rene. The honeymoon was over. He then used a hatchet to chop her into pieces that would fit into the suitcases he'd bought specifically for this purpose. Yet even as he dismembered her, he grew excited, so he used her hand to masturbate. Then he chewed on her nose and heard the noise of the cartilage crunching. Since he'd often thought about chewing on her lip, he removed it and set it aside. That part he would keep for later pleasures. I want her tongue, he said in his fictional account. I can't open her lower jaw, but I can reach in between her teeth. Finally, it comes out. He cut it off, popped it into his mouth, and watched himself chewing it in the mirror. Then he went for the eyes. The final step for Sagawa was to explore the internal organs, which stung his hands with digestive acid, and then used the hatchet to cut off her head. With so many parts removed, it looked like a skull. He grabbed the hair and hung the head in front of him, an experience that in retrospect caused him to say, I realized I am a cannibal. By the time he was finished bagging the pieces and locking them into a suitcase, it was midnight of the second day. He called a cab. Arriving at the Bois de Boulogne, he lugged the suitcases into the park, intending to shove them into the pond. However, he had a difficult time with his heavy burden. When he spotted some people watching him, he got scared and just left the suitcases. Martingale reports in Cannibal Killers that a couple went closer and saw a female hand protruding from one of the bloodstained cases, so they called the police. Police opened the suitcases, found the remains, and began the task of tracing the bags back to the purchaser. In the meantime, Sagawa returned to his apartment to enjoy the pieces of René Hartfelt that he'd put into the refrigerator. As he ate another gruesome meal, he thumbed through some pornography. Each day of his remaining freedom, he ate another piece, claiming in his later renditions that it became sweeter with time. The fictional serial killer Hannibal Lecter, featured in Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal, has a gruesome appetite for human flesh. He delights in his human liver with fava beans and finds the horrified reactions of others amusing. People are nothing to him but objects to be used to satisfy himself. He's the new cannibal, the one who brings his disgusting appetites into public view and revels in them, just as Sagawa has done. Fred Katz, sociologist and author of Ordinary People and Extraordinary Evil, examines how we can start out innocently and by gradual increments get into position to enact real evil. This generally involves viewing what we're doing through a framework that differs from that of society at large, and we may develop one out of rebellion, curiosity, exposure to new ideas, or perverse influences on the formation of our private fantasies. 
cannibalism, or the consumption of human flesh by another human has been practiced in many cultures, generally as a ritual. The Aztecs in Mexico sacrificed and then ate thousands of people every year to please the gods, and other cultures such as the Aborigines use the practice to incorporate the power of their enemies. Natives of the Fiji Islands simply like the taste, and people such as the Donner-led settlers in 1846 dined off others to survive in the rugged conditions of the Sierra Nevadas. There are different forms of cannibalism, or anthropophagy, and they're practiced for different reasons. Omophagia is a symbolic ritual meant to preserve the life force of the deceased by transforming the physical substance of the body into something spiritual. It may be done as part of deity worship or as a way to honor dead relatives. It may also be done to stave off widespread starvation, such as the widespread consumption of human flesh that occurred in the early part of the century in both China and Russia, mentioned by Chikatilo as influential on his own hunger. Some killers have adopted a form of omophagia, which is called zoophagia, as a means of possessing their victims. Zoophagia is the consumption of life forms, as seen in the character of Renfeld in Dracula, who progresses from spiders to flies to birds to cats. The idea is to ingest increasingly sophisticated life forms as a way to improve one's own. However, for many killers, cannibalism is more of an erotic or sexual fetish. For example, Fish claimed that as he ate the parts of his victims, he would grow increasingly excited and sometimes have an orgasm. Richard von Kraft Ebing published Psychopathia Sexualis in 1886, listing well over 200 cases of aggressive eroticism, some of which involved cannibalism. He described a man named Tirsch, 55, who came across a woman in the woods in 1864 and strangled her. He then cut off her breasts and genitalia and took them home to cook and eat. When he was arrested, he said his motive was inner impulse. Another case involved a 24-year-old vine dresser who murdered a girl, tore out her heart, and consumed part of it. Kraft Ebing views these cases as being driven by a perverted lust that forms into a desire to possess by consumption rather than sexual intercourse. Making a living person into an inanimate object is about power and control. In Cannibalism and Vampirism and Paranoid Schizophrenia, Four psychiatrists offer discussion in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry on an unusual case. The person was born in a rural part of France in 1940. Before he was 31, he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Nine years later, he killed an elderly man, devoured part of his thigh, and drank blood from an artery. Then he murdered a married couple and was arrested. He confessed to having killed his wife and then said he'd eaten parts of bodies to bring God back into his life. It was a form of holy communion. This sentiment the psychiatrist viewed as consistent with Sigmund Freud's interpretation of cannibalism as appropriating the power of another person. It seems that cannibalism may be more basic to our lives than one might want to believe, they conclude. Sagawa, who clearly had a sexualized lust, told a British journalist that his compulsion for cannibalism probably came from a childhood dream he'd had that left a huge impression. He was in a boiling pot with his brother, being prepared for a meal for someone else. From that point on, he began to fantasize regularly about cannibalism, switching his role from the disempowered meal to the empowered consumer. Yet he wasn't interested in ingesting the girls of his own race. He envisioned eating large blonde women with white skin. For him, the possibility of being intimate with them in this way was highly erotic. After his first breaking and entering incident in Tokyo, he actually went to a psychiatrist to confess his dark desires. The man believed that Sagawa was highly dangerous 
probably because he'd begun to act out his fantasies, but Sagawa's father managed to engineer a cover-up and then sent his son out of the country to another school. The mental health professionals who evaluated him later also saw dangerous tendencies in him, from psychosis to psychopathy. Yet, in the end, none of their diagnoses mattered. When the police arrived at his apartment two days after the murder with a search warrant, Sagawa let them in. They opened the refrigerator and found pieces of a female body inside, including lips. Sagawa freely confessed to what he had done, adding that he had a history of mental illness. In fact, his descriptions were so detailed and salacious that a judge decided he was not competent to stand trial. He was clearly delusional. Sagawa received a sentence of incarceration for an indefinite period in the Paul Guiro Asylum. Three psychiatrists who evaluated him said that he'd never be cured. According to Brian King, who edited Lustmord, while in hospital, Sagawa corresponded with several members of the Japanese literati who sent him books about other cannibals. I realized I was not so unusual, was his comment. He also said that he'd learned how to go about such a crime without getting arrested. It pays to be rich, and his father, Akira Sagawa, president of Kurita Water Industries in Tokyo, eventually worked out a deal in 1984 to have Sagawa transferred to the Matsuzawa Psychiatric Hospital in Japan. The superintendent there believed that he was sane and ought to be in prison. There, Sagawa remained for only 15 months before he was granted his freedom in August 1985, again thanks to his father and very much against the advice of the superintendent. After killing a woman and consuming her remains, Sagawa was able to go freely about in society only five years after the crime. He was even granted a passport to go to Germany. What made the situation worse was how he reveled in what he did and was only too happy to tell people about it on television talk shows. He even agreed to appear in several Japanese pornographic films, and he wrote four novels. The one in which he described the details of the murder sold over 200,000 copies. Thanks to his father, he'd gotten away with murder and was quite proud of it. Now Sagawa enjoys being the focus of tabloid media, granting interviews and making videos to indulge the voyeuristic curiosity of those who want to get closer to someone who has eaten human flesh. He apparently finds the attention amusing and does not feel that he did anything wrong. The public has made me the godfather of cannibalism, he stated, and I'm happy about that. The Rolling Stones wrote and recorded a song about Sagawa's gory deed, calling it Too Much Blood, and Sagawa tried his hand at a comic book version of the story. He also wrote a weekly column for a tabloid publication, edited an anthology of cannibal fantasies, and was featured on the cover of a Japanese gourmet magazine. Under an assumed name, he even managed to get women to pose nude for him. On his website, he offered excerpts from his rendition of his crime and discussed why cannibalism is not such a horrific act. In a magazine article, he said that he now envisions being eaten himself by a young Western woman. Because, he insists, only an act like that will save him.